sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? Welcome back to the show. This is Moving Needle Podcast. And if you are new to the show, welcome. Thanks for downloading. I'm your host, Andrew Nietling. The previous episode with G. Atherton was really good. So if you haven't listened to that one, make sure you download it. He's a two-time downhill mountain bike world champion and known as one of the toughest men in mountain biking. He's taken some serious crashes, had some big injuries, but he's got a great process of bouncing back from those injuries, both physically and mentally. So make sure you check that one out. Now, on to this week's episode, something I think is going to surprise you guys. It's a little bit different. I've got Taylor Rapley from New Zealand. She's a mental skills consultant and facilitator. She's got a passion for high-performance athletes and helping them through mindfulness. Yes, you heard me correctly. We are going to do a little bit of work on our heads, a little bit of work on our thoughts. And I know personally, when I was racing at the top level, if I could control my thoughts or at least be aware of them and myself talk, I would often have way better races. So I'm really excited for this episode because I think it can help us not just when we ride bikes, but definitely in business and our day-to-day lives. So guys, without further ado, let's hear from Taylor Rapley. Well, welcome back to the show. I've, I'm actually very excited and it's something that I'm very interested in. I think a lot of the listeners will be as well. I've managed to track down Taylor Rapley. She's a mental skills consultant and facilitator specializing in performance psychology and well-being. I know that's a mouthful, um, but we're going to get into what exactly that is and, and what her expertise are. So Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Stoked to be here. Well, why don't you uh, help the listeners and me give us a little bit of background to your interest and passion in mindfulness, which we're going to get to, and that's kind of how I came across your work. Yeah, so you actually found me, I think, through my research that I'm doing um, on mindfulness with high-performance athletes. So that's sort of my main interest there is working with high-performance athletes and how acceptance-based strategies can help people to perform. Uh, but I also work with individuals and organizations as well through my business, Ahua Psychology, um, specializing in resilience and well-being. So that's where it started, <laughs> um, and I'm still sort of on the road to finishing that. And, and a passion for this side of the work. Where, did, where does that come from? Where did you want to get into something like this? Well, I started off, I spent about eight years of my life ski racing competitively. Um, I represented New Zealand, um, traveling back and forth between Europe, North America and New Zealand, um, competing over there and sort of fell into that category of (laughs) being able to train really well um, and really consistently. And then when it came to my performance, um, I was kind of always just letting myself down and that sort of struck my interest in performance psychology and psychology in general. Um, also, when it coincided with retiring from competitive sport um, and sort of that whole, I guess, crisis that comes with that transition from being a competitive athlete to then not having that sport, um, a lot of us tend to sort of hold on to that as our identity and it can cause a lot of, I guess, um, anxiety and suffering. 
um, making that transition. So that's when I started to lean towards psychology a little bit more. Do you think that helped you with your transition, being able to dig into the mind and the, the battles that, say, what you spoke about and, and exports that has to get into normal life or walk away from what they feel is their identity? Yeah, 100%. I was already studying psychology throughout my career. Um, my parents sort of made me always have that as my plan B, which I'm really grateful for. Um, so they're like, well, if you, you break a bone or you do something, you're always going to need your education and a career to fall back on. So I always had that. But it, yeah, it wasn't until I finished ski racing that I really got into the postgraduate stuff. And for sure, like I just kept discovering so many things that I wish I had known um, when I was an athlete. And I sort of questioned like, why isn't this stuff mainstream? And I keep sort of rediscovering all of these things that make me really want to share this with the world and with high performance athletes, because I think it's, it's going to be extremely helpful. And it would have been to me at the time as well. I have a sneaky feeling I'm going to feel similar to you after some of these uh, methods and, and the psychology behind it, when you can start figuring that out, because a lot of the time you actually know that it's in your mind and that it's kind of in your control, but you just can't figure it out. Um, yeah. So yeah, I came across your work. Yeah, the the beautiful world of social media and and uh, some people we we um, have in common or friends in common that you shared something that you were researching mindfulness. We were saying we're not going to really talk about it as meditation, but more mindfulness in performance mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So, can you help the listener understand like where your main passion is or interest is in this this uh, performance based uh, mindfulness? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I actually, um, first of all, I for a long time have hated the word mindfulness. Um, It's quite a buzzword and I think it's been overused um, the wrong way in in the West. Sorry Um, to butt in. I was going to say like it seems like a buzzword of today. So yeah, speak more to that, please. It'll be interesting to, to help the listener understand what it actually means. Yeah, well, mindfulness stems from that ancient philosophy, Buddhism, the Vedas. It, it comes from, it basically means to a present moment awareness with a non-judgmental attitude. But there's so much more that goes into that, which we can talk about um, today. But I guess in the West, it's been reconceptualized to sort of mean, you know, namaste, relaxation, bliss, happiness. And it's associated with that kind of um, constant pursuit of happiness and that strive to always feel good and to never stress and you know that's not what mindfulness is it's it's about it's about having discomfort and being able to observe and be with discomfort without trying to overly control it Um, and that's sort of become I guess lost in mainstream mindfulness and so when I started my research, I was like, what other word can I use other than mindfulness? Because I feel like it's lost its impact. Um, but here I am researching the word mindfulness um, with high performance athletes. So, um, yeah, but it's it's super interesting when it comes to high performance sport, that's for sure. And, and you spoke about a nod, non-judgmental look at it. And, and I think that's probably a key is help me understand and the listeners this non-judgmental side of being mindful and um, your thoughts and and stresses which are going to happen in racing in his life like you can't be happy all the time and you can't be just happy go lucky you're going to be stressed in a high performance situation 
Yeah, 100%. Um, especially in high-performance sports, stress is inevitable. Fear, nerves, self-doubt, all of that stuff, it goes hand-in-hand hand, the, the more competitive you get. So first, a major thing for me is not trying to, um, I guess, control or suppress or you know, get away from that discomfort, but basically how can we work within that discomfort? How can we experience negative thoughts? How can we have this fear, these these uh, difficult feelings and still perform and still throw down um, on the day? Because at the end of the day, the, the best athletes are those who aren't being dictated by their fluctuating thoughts and emotions. Um, you hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's all about mindset how you feel on the day, if, you, if you're feeling it, you're going to perform, and if you're not, you're not. But why should we have to be victim to our thoughts and emotions? Um, we should be able to get into the start gate feeling scared shitless and, you know, have a little bit of self-doubt and still be able to throw down um, consistently. And that that's what I want to teach athletes basically how to do so it sounds like you're saying some athletes and, and people assume that yes it's all in the mind but if they're on a day and they're not feeling it they it's like they're like it's out of my control i wasn't feeling it that day so i had a bad day when i was feeling it i had a good day and it seems like they're not really taking ownership that they can control not control the thoughts those are coming in and out as you've said and we'll get into but they can control how they react to it and, and how they actually perform. They might not perform, yes, at a 10 out of 10 that day, but they could get to a 8 or 9 out of 10 instead of assuming, uh, accepting that it's, okay, I'm not feeling it, I'm going to be a 6 out of 10 today. Yeah, exactly. And a big part of um, mindfulness approach in high-performance sport is about rather than changing the content of your thoughts and emotions, it's about changing how you relate to them. Um, in that sense, we're not trying to control our thoughts. We're not trying to control how we're feeling. We're trying to change how we relate to those. Um, and that's where a, a cognitive diffusion, which is a huge thing, and we can talk about that, that comes into play. Being able to separate yourself, create a distance between the thought, you, and your execution, your behavior, your ability to execute and perform. Well, talk us through that. Maybe if you want to play a little real world, someone's at the top of the hill getting ready to start and these sort of negative. I mean, it's easy to perform when everything's positive or everything's going well. So maybe yeah. you can help us understand that and do a real world walkthrough of what it looks like at the top of the hill, or what you would tell one of your athletes or help them with. Well, cognitive diffusion is basically, it's a fancy word for, cognitive means your thoughts, um, and to diffuse from something is to separate from, to not attach, to not over-identify with. So when you have thoughts in your mind, say, I'm not good enough, you know, I'm not good enough to be here, um, you can either fuse to those, um, buy into it, you know, the associated emotions that come with that I'm not good enough, the anxiety, the fear, the, you know, the tenseness, you know, that feeling when you're racing and you, everything just feels stiff and just not very fluid. Oh, yeah, I know that all too well, yeah. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, and then you've got – and then what you can do is you can separate yourself from that thought. So instead of trying to be like, no, I am good enough, I deserve to be here, it's fine, like that positive psychology, which – I mean, there's research to suggest it does work, but there's also research to suggest that it may make matters worse. Um, so it's kind of depends who you're talking to. But basically, when we try to overly control our thoughts with, um, I guess, reframing them, we really have to believe it <laughs> for it to work. And a lot of the time, if you're, you know, reframing a negative thought and turning it into a positive one, 
you're not actually feeling that. You're just kind of changing the, I guess, the voice in your head, but it's it's you're not connecting with it. So when we diffuse from our cognitions or from our thoughts, we're able to step away and observe them non-judgmentally. That is not to label it as good or bad or wrong or right, just is what it is. And a perfect example of that would be, you know, I'm not good enough. And then rephrasing that with, I think I'm not good enough. And then rephrase that with, I notice I'm thinking I'm not good enough. Um, And if you sit there, if I had you basically sit there and close your eyes, um, which you could do right now, maybe. I'll do, I'll do um, it for think, the listeners at home. I'll close do my it, eyes. Do it for the listeners. Maybe the listeners can do it. So you sit there and you think of a really negative thought, um, nothing too deep because we need you to function for the next hour, but think of a negative thought that sort of gets in the way um, and just really feel it and buy into it and just repeat it over and over and get involved. And now I want you in your head to... In front of that word, in front of that thought, I want you to add, I think that. And then I want you to add, I notice that I'm thinking. And then when you're ready, come on back. And I'm back, and I hope the listeners were not driving in the car <laughs> and, and doing this, but I do <laughs> urge them to take the time to, to sit somewhere. I really did feel yeah. a difference, so to talk us what through the, that method. Sort of notice, what did you notice with that I, yourself? I, I felt a bit lighter, like it, it wasn't true. Um, when I say <laughs> things to myself or negative self-talk, be it sport or in life, I think mm-hmm. it can really go down a rabbit hole, but when you rephrase it, it makes you think about if it's, for me, if it's true or not. And then when I rephrase yeah. it, that I notice that I'm thinking it's like quite third person because yeah. one thing I've noticed is to a friend or a colleague, you wouldn't be as harsh to them as you would to yourself. And I don't know if I'm nah. on the same thought train there, but when I rephrase it, it seems like I'm looking down and going, well, that's not actually true. I'm, I notice that, sometimes mm-hmm. feel that way, but it's not who I am or what I am. Yeah, yeah so you're, you're diffusing from the thought. You're creating a space, a separation, a distance, whatever you want to call it, from the thought and, and you and therefore your behavior and your emotions and everything that can be triggered from, from that thought. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful tool and it's just noticing like not every thought we have is a representation of the truth. Um, not every thought we have is a representation of total reality, even though it might be a, like possibly likely, Mm -hmm. um, we don't know until we know, um, and that not all thoughts require action. And that's a big one there. So imagine, like I just say to people, like imagine if every thought you had, um, was a reflection of the truth. Um, imagine if you had to act on every thought you had. Like, I mean, half of us would be in prison. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would there would be a lot of a lot more chaos than there is. I think some people yeah. are acting a lot on these thoughts, and me included. I mean, sometimes you get yeah. yourself into a spiral. Especially, um, and I don't want to talk about COVID on this at all because it's just like way 
to like overspoken at the moment that when we're under stress which a lot of people are at the moment athletes businesses you are more likely to fuse to your thoughts you're more likely to attach to your thoughts and act on those thoughts um, really reactively from these little mental shortcuts in our brain which is super interesting as an athlete because we're more likely to buy into our negative thoughts or to buy into you know, a situation, whether it's your coach um, giving you a handful or, you know, a teammate being a difficult or tough conditions. When we're under stress during competition, we're more likely to be triggered by that sort of stuff. We're more likely to attach to that. We're less likely to be able to step away from it. So it's super easy to diffuse from our thoughts, to not attach to our thoughts when we're not under stress, like right now. Um, but as soon as you get in that start gate, as soon as it's world champs or whatever it is, that becomes a whole lot harder. Um, stress and basically it impairs the front part of your brain, which is responsible for that executive functioning and that ability to consciously respond and mindfully respond. That's super interesting. Yeah, so yeah. something like world champs being that extra big event uh, in our sport and in, in all sports, really, or the Olympics that comes around every four years, mm. you are like almost forced into a more stressful situation because you've put more expectations on it. So you're naturally yeah. not going to deal with the situation as well as you normally would because there's a higher yeah. stress, right? So then it's yeah. more important that you're aware of this mindfulness and some of these methods you can use, it seems. Because yeah. naturally, so, you're not even going to be able to do what you normally do, let alone at a higher level that you need. Yeah, exactly. And that's where practice, I, I have this saying, which I'm not even going to say, it's not a saying, it doesn't make sense, it confuses people. So I'll rewind there. But basically, stress impairs your ability to deal with stress in the first place. Okay, when you need yeah. It. When you so need it the most. if you're under stress and you're like, okay, I'm feeling really stressed, I'm really nervous, like this is a lot right now. I'm going to use that that thing that that lady taught me to do this. And and you've only used it once or twice in your life. It hasn't become ingrained. It hasn't become a habit because you haven't practiced it. Flag it. Your brain's too overloaded. You're not going to be able to do that. The same is with new skills. Like have you ever been in a um, race where you've been training and your coach has given you some technical feedback and then you try and do it in a race? but you find that you just fall back to your old habits? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've done it in other sports where I've, I've <clears throat> not been at expert level and I'm trying to improve. So I understand that you know, when you get given something new and you don't trust it and you don't have the confidence, you definitely fall back on your old habits quickly. So if you haven't <clears throat> excuse me, practiced it, trusted and ingrained it in something, and maybe we're going to jump to another topic, but I mean, do you have a view on where confidence comes from? I have it from demonstrated practice. You have to be able to show yourself that you can do it under, say, a stressful situation or a practice environment that's been quite stressful to then take it to a race. Yeah, 100%. I think confidence is huge. But um, to be honest, I haven't. I guess I the work I do with athletes through confidence would be through being able to diffuse from those thoughts and emotions that counter that confidence. So it's easy to be confident when you're confident, but what about when things start, when that self-doubt creeps in? How can you maintain that confidence? Um, and that comes through with that mindfulness stuff. But 
for sure like um, when it comes to practicing these skills and when it comes to stress um, I'm really I'm a big fan of stress inoculation so training in conditions that might be similar to where you're racing um, being able to perform in training how you would in racing learning to be comfortable with stress basically it takes practice which is why like you know, and a, a master or an elite athlete who's been doing their competition for a really long time are probably going to perform better at the Olympics if it's their fifth Olympics compared to the rookie who's at their first Olympics because they've like practiced in those conditions before. That makes makes a lot of sense, and we see it time and time again. And I think sometimes the rookie assumes that only he's going through this stressful situation, but the master mm. or the more experienced rider is 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 in the same stressful situation. They're, they're technically as stressed, but they're able to deal with it better. They have routines. They have these sort of practices. So maybe let's talk into that. How do you, how would you work with a rookie? What would you say to them? What would you, what sort of drills would you be doing to say, look, it's going to be stressful. You're going to be probably dealing with it not as well as the experienced guy, but with practice, we can expedite this process. Yeah, well, the one, the first thing I say to these athletes is, you know, think of one person. Tell me one person who doesn't have negative thoughts or emotions. And they can't, usually, because everyone okay. does. And yeah. I'd say, you know, think of someone you look up to. Um, do they have negative thoughts and emotions? How, how, do they, how do they perform so consistently? Like, how are they winning all these World Cups back-to-back? -back? Like, what, what sets do, – do they just not have negative thoughts and emotions? And, you know, we begin to discover, like, yeah, they do. <laughs> they still have that self-doubt. They still have that nervousness and that fear. Uh, maybe not all the time, but it definitely comes up. The difference is they're able to perform regardless. They're able to have these negative thoughts, have these difficult emotions, not attach to them, focus on the task at hand, and do what they have to do to get down the hill as fast as they can. Whereas the rookie is more likely to hold on to that self-doubt, those emotions, you know, all of those things that are, that are going to make them ultimately choke um, when they become too involved in their, in their mind and unable to focus on the task at hand, which is super important. Which in a sense, if I've understood correctly, is some of my version of mindfulness being present at the task at hand and, and what you're at. Mm -hmm. If you're in your thoughts, you might be thinking of your result or what it will be like, or how stressful it will be. You know, if you've qualified very well, your mind is going ahead to shucks. If I just put a good run down, I'm going to be in the top five or top three or whatever your goal is. But you've missed the whole presentness and process to get down the hill well. And that's, you know, whatever the pre-race routine is, whatever you normally do in the start gate, you know. And, and does that not come back to mindfulness then? 100%. So um, a lot of the research on mindfulness, so first, there's so much research on mindfulness and with clinical populations, with anxiety, depression, those sort of things. Little, like, research is only just surfacing on how does it help with performance. And so the researchers have gone back to flow state. Um, flow state is that state of optimal performance where you're fully in the zone, whatever you want to call it. And they realize, well, mindfulness and flow state are one of the same things. Mindfulness is a key component of flow state and that is that present moment focus, being totally absorbed in the task at hand. Um, and when we're mindful, we're not involved with our thoughts, we're not involved with our thinking, we're involved with 
that that present moment, that present moment awareness, that and that helps us to be adaptive, to adapt, to recover from mistakes, to do what we need to do to perform our best. No, that's fascinating stuff, and it, I might be jumping topics here, but it's always been something I'd want to, to know, or maybe it makes me feel better about uh, my performance. But yes, there are those guys that can always perform, and it seems like some of them, when the stakes get higher and there's more pressure... Is there any chemical imbalance or I'm trying to get the right word? Is it sometimes just you're born with a certain uh, way of dealing with stress versus someone else? And I can understand we can train it and get better. But sometimes it seems like guys thrive off more pressure. And when there's no pressure, they actually can't even perform that well. When there's a lot of pressure, it's like they just get super focused. They clearly get mindful, et cetera, et cetera. And then some other guys have to really switch on this this practice to get to their optimum level like would you say sometimes guys are born with a little bit more than others yeah super interesting i i don't know what the answer is to that um in terms of of the the neurochemicals in the brain and the genetics but i do know that one key um finding in research on flow state is what they call the skill versus challenge ratio um so basically in order, okay, I'll go go backwards a step before I get into that. You talked about pressure and people thriving under pressure. So there's this thing in psychology we call eustress. Um, it's EU and then stress. And it's basically, it means positive stress. So it's the good stress, the pressure when the heat is on. It helps us to focus. It mm. gives us motivation. It gets us fired up. Um, and that is where we can get into that flow state where we're not too challenged, you know, that it becomes like distressing, but it's not too easy that it's boring. It's like that perfect skill to challenge ratio. So it's all perceptive. So what's like too, too challenging for you is going to make you feel stressed. So sorry, what's too challenging for someone is going to cause stress. It's too easy for someone is going to cause stress. It has to be just hard enough. And that's when we get into that flow state. So that's where some people really thrive under pressure. And everybody needs that. And a lot I teach that a lot with like individuals and organizations is, hey, stress isn't bad. Think of all the times you've been under stress and you've done really well. Yeah. Um, I use examples of, of, you know, preparing for workshops or writing my thesis. I'm always like right up until the deadline because the pressure's on. I need to get it done. I need that pressure to focus. And without it, I can't do it. And it's the exact same with athletes. They need that pressure to get into that flow. Yeah, it makes sense. And maybe the experienced rider, like you said, he needs what is perceived to other people as cr- very stressful or a high-pressure situation. Mm-hmm. He's he's done it so much that he almost needs the world champs to get to his optimum level because he's kind of bored of the local races. And, and you see it a lot. You see it now yeah. if you go to a local race, the world champion can get beat by the local guy. Because the local yeah, guy yeah, is yeah. still comfortable in his situation and the world champ's like, this means nothing. I'm not going to risk. I'm not really going to engage yeah. much focus here. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use this as a as a prep race. And then you get to the world champs and the opposite happens. The local hero has got so much expectations on him, so much pressure, and he hasn't been in that situation enough. So it, some people, maybe it's not... It's for him and yeah. it's perfect. So for, maybe for it's not world. fully a chemical imbalance, etc. Maybe there is some things in the genes, but it's also like... You need to yeah. put yourself in those pressure situations over and over again and learn to get comfortable when the stakes are high, it seems. 
And it's so, um, it just varies across individuals, right? It varies depending on your skill level and depending on your coping mechanisms and also depending on your resting state of arousal. So like what, like your resting state of stress, like are you a massive chiller? Like are you quite a calm person? Anything super stressful for you is going to trigger you. But if you're like a real fast kind of like go-getter kind of person, then you're going to thrive in those stressful situations. So there's so many variables that determine how a person thrives and what their optimum is because it just it, there's so much variance across individuals. And and how would you help athletes or could you help athletes listening to this or just people, like you said, there's an environment that they f- perform best under and some of them need to be hyped up at the top of a run, some of them need to be calmed down. And, and I experienced it myself, playing with a few different scenarios and figuring out what mood or what situation I need to be in. Can you speak a bit into that for some people, like how critical that may be? Yeah, it's that um, self-awareness, which you obtain through mindfulness, and it's finding your own optimum. So reflecting on a lot of athletes, once they get to that professional level, they have that really good self-awareness. Like you said, when you were competing, you sort of were assessing, like, when is this, like, when when do I feel optimal, when don't I, and why? So my first thing would be to those athletes is find your optimal when are you performing your best? Is it when you're out riding with your friends doing like really gnarly stuff? Do you find yourself completely in this like out of body experience where you're in flow because you need to then try and replicate those conditions when you can um, during races and things and you can, you know, psych yourself up, you can calm yourself down, but what's, what's optimal for you might not be optimal for someone else. So it comes down to, that self-awareness basically and understanding where's your perfect spot because you need that you need your optimum you need that to achieve flow state um if it's too hard it's going to be scary if it's too easy it's going to be boring um but again that also you don't want to rely too much on the external stuff because a lot of that's out of your control um you don't want to have to be like oh well this race is important but it's not challenging enough so i'm not going to do well, which comes back to that mindfulness stuff and control, you know, changing what's going on in here rather than out there. Yeah, it seems like a lot of it is coming back to that. And you spoke a bit about inputs and, and outputs and out of your control. Is that something that this mindfulness can really helpful, help uh, people and athletes of like really um, diffusing what's controllable and not controllable and what information I should actually take in or not? Yeah, I think... Um, a big thing in like traditional psychological skills training is comes down to controlling things we can't control a lot of the time. Um, you know, the imagery, goal setting, all of those things, it sort of takes you out of the moment. It sort of takes you out of that in the moment process, in the moment focus. So I think it comes down to just coming back to that present moment awareness. And it's it's, it's really hard to in a podcast to kind of be like, do like, you know, do this, 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 and then this, I do an eight week course on this whole thing. Um, each session is an hour long. So it's, I feel, you, you know, I'm not doing it justice by trying to like give these little shortcut snippets of <laughs> how to do it. No, no, like, I I apologize to put you on that, that spot. 
but I, I wish I could. And I, a lot of people want that and they'll go on those blogs and things and, you know, five steps to be happy. And it's like, oh, that's a bit more of a process. But Taylor, I think that's actually brilliant because I was going to say it, it, it really seems and I believe that it's not, there's no quick fix here. So it's good that you bring up, hey, it's a bit of a challenge to just give you a, a little snippet of what to do here and there. I guess we're trying to create an awareness that this is something you should really look into and, and research and, and be aware of yourself and reflect a bit. But there is no quick fix in, in anything in getting to the top of, of racing and, and getting your mind to, to work optimum. There's no, like you say, quick five steps and then you will be always uh, riding to your optimum level. That's impossible. So, yeah, I urge the guys to, to go to your website and we'll, we'll link to that and do that all at the end of the show. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing up that point. I agree. It's not just a, put a quick plaster on the cut and you're going to be back to yeah. your optimum self. But there is like, it, but you can't, you can do it. It just requires work and practice is such a huge thing with what I do. Um, I don't go and tell people like, oh, when you feel stressed, do this. And when you feel scared, do this. And, you know, write your goals down and, you know, it'll be fine. It's, it's that practice in between sessions. Um, when I did some work up with the police, the New Zealand police, which was really interesting, we did some cognitive conditioning with them. And basically we, uh, it was a program device to help police recruits be able to perform under pressure. You can imagine as a police person, if you're stressed, there's no room for error. Like when you go to your first crime scene, like, oh, whoops, I walked all through the evidence. Like, my bad, I was really stressed and I wasn't thinking straight. Like, that's not really a thing. You can't do that. So we taught them how to perform under stress. And a huge part of that training was practicing um, pra practicing in the gym during their training, like all the time practicing these skills throughout life. So it became this automated habit so that when they were stressed, that was second nature to them the, the the cognitive condition was second nature to them those skills we taught um so for those listeners out there like practice is super important and it doesn't have to be hours and hours a day but you think about how much time you spend just like riding your bike or working out or going to physio I mean we put like some people don't even put 10 minutes a day on their mental skills and I mean if you did and you did that over time like it would be amazing but you're not going to make those changes in your brain just like listening to one podcast and reading one self-help book. It's just not going to happen. And we need to get away from that culture. And I think we need to invest in, in, in real practice. Yeah, I mean, in this this day and age, the culture is like there's no delayed gratification. Everything's like instant. So they want the quick fix, the latest like summarized self-help book and summarized sports psychology book, you know. So, yeah, I think that's fascinating. Back <laughs> Back when I was racing, if it was you know, early season, there weren't a lot of races to get the reps in. Uh, I would go with a mechanic and, and we would do some timed runs and I would actually simulate a race. So that is mm. a bit, you know, action based and stuff. But I think there's visualization and going, OK, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to set up my trainer and I'm going to visualize that I'm at the top of a race and, and, and try to mm -hmm. get my body used to those stresses and feelings. And it's not exactly mm. like a race, but I didn't have races to do that. Is that something that these athletes can do is simulate races going into a season so that they, they they get into that visualization and and say oh these are the mental things oh I'm, i actually got that doubtful thought before i went to my timed run 
Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm really big on race simulation. Um, I when I work with teams, if I'm anywhere near coaches, I'm always like, hey, let's get in, like let's get the timing out, let's get them, let's get them scared. They're like, oh, we don't want to stress them out. I'm like, why? They've got you know a race in two weeks, and they're all gonna perform like absolute shit because it's the first race of the season, and you know you've just been sort of warming them up. So I'm really big on race simulation. Again, that comes down to getting comfortable with discomfort, going, ooh, what comes up when I'm stressed? Okay, how can I get comfortable with that? How can I apply these skills like diffusion and stuff in training when I'm stressful so that when I get into my race, it's just second nature, it's a habit. Um, To your um, comment on visualization, I don't know a lot about visualization um, in terms of research there has been studies that have come out to suggest that visualization may not be as effective um, as it's all made out to be. It's kind of like the gold standard in sports psychology. And I'm still learning about why that is and making my own conclusions about that. But I I don't personally teach visualization. But however you're going to simulate that stressful environment, do it regularly. Push yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's going to do wonders for being able to perform when the pressure's yeah, on. Yeah, I think the visualization thing in, in, you know, the sport of downhill, be it skiing, be it mountain biking, sometimes you can do uh, practice reps. It's actually almost physical. If you're doing visualization of the course, instead of doing 20 runs that day, you might do two or three runs and then, you know, watch your GoPro and visualize yourself doing the run. But as far as you're yeah, talking to putting yourself in stressful situations, yeah, let's maybe not dive into that. But I think that's fascinating with your passion into mindfulness and how everything, you know, there's a standard and then there's more research, more tests done. And, and you get to the point that things evolve. Psychology will evolve. Racing evolves. Um, so, no, I don't think anything is set in stone, you know. Yeah, I hope so, because it is really promising. And I think... Um... You know, in sports psychology, the gold standard has been this change-based therapy. Like, oh, you're thinking negatively? Let's reframe that so you think positively. Like, you know, arousal control, all of these things. And, yes, some of it is – it works, but a lot of it doesn't work. And, you know, there's even research to suggest that thought control or thought suppression can make unwanted thoughts worse, the same but not better. So an example would be – you know, oh, I'm feeling, give like an example of a negative thought, again, I don't deserve to be here, or like, I can't do this. And then you go, oh, no, I need to be positive, I need to be positive, I can do this. But if you don't, if you're not feeling it, if you're not like connecting to that with your heart, with, you know, with your whole self, it doesn't work, your mind knows it's fake. Um, so that's where mindfulness comes into play, where you can actually have those negative thoughts, diffuse from them, create a separation and focus on the task at hand and act on your values rather than your emotional impulses or your thoughts um, and do what you need to do to perform well in that time. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that um, could you talk us through, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but say I've had this, uh, you know, you're at this top of the start and oh, I'm going to crash in the first turn or don't, you know, we've all heard don't use the word don't. And this is where you're going to help us detach from that. Don't crash in the first turn. Oh, I'm going to look like such an idiot if I crash in the first turn. You know, and mm. that's going through your 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 head. Um, so maybe yeah. let's roll, you know, role play. Be my psychologist, even though luckily I don't have to deal with that anymore. 
But that would happen. And if I said, if I was able to, you know, step away from that race and say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Like, what do I do? What does an athlete yeah, yeah. do? And then that spiral. I'll go, I'll go back to that diffusion exercise we had again. So first, like, normalize that thought. Um, I talk a lot about clean emotions versus dirty emotions. So, like, a clean emotion is reasonable. It's inevitable. Um, you can't control it. And, yeah, it might be uncomfortable. So a clean emotion would be, a fe- like, fear before a big race, like nervousness. That's, that's inevitable. Um, <laughs> It's out of your control and it's clean. It's reasonable. Of course, you're nervous before a race. And then you've got these dirty emotions. So a dirty emotion is secondary. So it comes after your clean emotion. So I'm feeling scared before a race. Okay, now I'm telling myself not to be scared. Now I'm judging myself for being scared. Now I feel guilty. Now I feel anxious. Oh, now I'm trying not to be anxious. Now I feel more anxious about being anxious. Now I'm going to completely, you know, it's those dirty emotions have you can can you relate to what I, I'm saying? I can I, I hate to say it, I can relate so well to that. I mean, doesn't matter what you do in what race it is, those things happen and if you're not aware of them, you definitely spiral. Absolutely. Yeah. Spiral. yeah. That dirty emotion yeah, sure. is is I think to talk more to that, yeah. And and how to clean those up. We have an initial clean emotion and we're like, Oh, this is uncomfortable. Because we're so scared of discomfort, you know, we're just taught you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable, like, oh, be positive, focus on your gratitude list, be happy, like, discomfort is bad, but it's not, it's it's natural, it's inevitable, it's evolutionary, we need discomfort, you said it before, you need the pressure to perform, discomfort's epic, but our natural response is to resist that discomfort, so we resist those clean emotions, like that fear, and we try to control it rather than to just be with it and be like, sweet, I'm scared, that's totally natural, it's normal, I'm going to diffuse from the thoughts that are associated with that fear, I'm not going to become my emotion, I'm going to act based on my values, not on my emotions, I'm going to come back to the present moment, what's in my control, you know, rather than letting it manifest into these dirty emotions when before you know it, like, I get younger athletes, I don't want to go to their race, they're that that their clean emotion has caused such dirty emotions that they don't even want to show up. They've trained all season for nationals and they're like, I can't, I don't want to go. And that's because of those dirty emotions. And that comes down to a failure to accept <laughs> and to diffuse um, from those emotions through, through mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, the these sort of dirty emotions must have derailed so many careers and maybe some careers that didn't even get to the start line because... They didn't want to go to the race after after all the work. And maybe some of this research and, and work can, can help athletes get over that hurdle and, and realizing that, hey, I'm nervous is a good thing. It that doesn't that mean that this is important to me or you know, that that it's a you know, I just think that okay, if I'm nervous it still means something to me. If I'm gonna to get to a start line and I'm not nervous, I actually don't care. Then I don't yeah. even care about performing and then yeah, look, yeah. maybe I'd be super relaxed, but I think at that time you just don't need to, you shouldn't even be there if you don't actually care about the big moment. Yeah, and a lot of the time athletes will go back and say, oh, but you can't possibly say, like, anxiety is a good thing. And I'm like, well, no, but what came before the anxiety? Like, what came before that? And before that, what was the primary clean emotion? Because it was how you related to that one clean emotion that led to this unnecessary suffering. So if you can just go back to that primary emotion and just sit with it, be with it, observe it, 
without fully attaching to it and becoming with it and finding a little bit of comfort in that inevitable discomfort, you won't have to go there. You won't have to go into the place where you're crying or, you know, not wanting to show up or, you know, being a total dick to everyone around you because you have harnessed that initial clean emotion and you've welcomed that. And um, yeah, finding comfort and discomfort through acknowledging and accepting our clean emotions is a huge part of what I teach. And it's usually a really game-changing part of the program for athletes when we get into the into that um, area because they're like, well, that, you know, that makes so much sense. So it's okay to feel like this. <laughs> so comfort, yes. comfort in discomfort. Yeah, finding comfort in discomfort, which is pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> like it used to being uncomfortable. It, that's life. That's where you hear those cheesy quotes, like whatever, get out of your comfort zone. Like that's where the magic happens. Like it's true. It's it it, it really is. I mean, there weren't many race mornings that were fun. I mean, it was fun once the race was done, but if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't keep coming back. There was something about it, like not having an appetite in the morning and and being nervous and, and going through your routines. And there was something really amazing about getting that race done and, and performing to, to a very good level. But equally, yeah. what was difficult for myself, and I think a lot of athletes, is maybe being the more aware you are, knowing that it's in your control, in your mind, you know, and that's hard yeah. because it's probably easier to blame, okay, I'm not as technically gifted at this guy. I have tried, but I'm just not as good on that course, you know, factually. Okay, mm. in the gym, I actually push less weights than him, so he's probably going to pedal better than me. But in when it comes to the mind, if you've, and I mean, I don't really like the term choke, but there are times that that happens. You've only got yourself mm. to blame, so it makes it even more difficult, you know. You've, you've got nowhere to go but go, okay, it happened in my head. I actually had the control to diffuse or, you know, find comfort in the discomfort. That makes it very, very difficult. Yeah, for sure. And we, we put so much emphasis on that physical training side of things. And like, yeah, I might not be able to give like a 10 steps to being a world champion in one podcast, but it is doable. Like with the right skills um, and the commitment, like you, you can manage that stuff. Um, easier than you think and for those athletes who have you know tried the meditation app or <laughs> tried the gratitude list or the goal setting or the visualization it hasn't quite worked I, I think I just recommend getting like a structured sort of program a plan to help you actually apply that in a way that's relevant to you and your sport and also evidence-based there's a lot of stuff out there that people are teaching that has got no evidence behind it um, people like to go oh, this sounds smart and interesting and it worked for me, so I'm going to now teach that to everyone. Um, you want something that's backed by a little bit of evidence. Uh, I think that's really important. And yeah. Ab Absolutely. <laughs> I think athletes uh, will latch on to anything that they think might help or they see that it helps at cool. one race and then they like assume that that was what's going to help them and that comes back to even maybe some of them being superstitious and stuff like that. That's not a yeah. process. That's not going to work long term because eventually race is going to go bad. They're going to blame just, it. That's just fusing to your mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. You've got the fancy words for it's yeah. not the lucky pair of underwear. You know, it's just what yeah. was going in in your mind was helping you succeed. And then eventually you didn't stick to that. You didn't quite get your processes done. And then you've had a bad race and now you blame it on an external. Yeah. 
No, it's a, it's a tough one. It's easy to get real stuck in your head. Um, you want to simplify and let go of control a little bit. The the more you realize how actually little you have to control and how liberating that is, you know, good things start to happen. You want to put you want to put your control and your focus into what's important um, on the day, the skills, the tactics, your racing, you know, recovering from a mistake, making sure your equipment, you know, all of that stuff. You don't want to spend 50% of your brain's resources on trying to control a negative thought. Like that's exhausting and that's going to take all of your energy when you need it for other things. So um, that's why those these acceptance-based strategies I think are, are really rad and um, refreshing for a lot of people. And you've been so great with your time. And, and before I let you go, if you will, um, I hope there's a lot of listeners that might not be aspiring to be top athletes, but they really um, look up to these riders and they want to improve their riding. But how can these strategies or what these athletes do help people in everyday life, everyday life situations? Well, I when I talk about performance and well-being, they go hand in hand. Performance is well-being. Um, when I talk about performance, I talk about being, without sounding super cheesy, being the best version of yourself to yourself, being the best dad, the best partner, you know, the best friend, the best colleague, just living your, your utmost potential, which is infinite. So that performance comes back to that day-to-day, how we're functioning day-to-day. It's not, you know, home person versus person in competition and not separate people. So... And, you know, mindfulness originated with that idea of suffering and how can we, you know, all the research is done with clinical populations. A lot of the research is done with clinical populations with anxiety and depression and learning how to have negative thoughts and negative emotions without buying into it. Um, So it's the exact same thing, whether you have self-doubt, whether you're negative to yourself, whether you're super anxious about your career, your life, your relationship, whatever it is the skills cross over um, the exact same way, which is why I do a program with athletes and I also do a program with just everyday individuals. Oh, that's brilliant ad- advice and, and something for people to realize that it can help with all walks of life. If they're doubting if they're a good father, I mean, that's similar to doubting if you're a good racer or whatever it may mm, be. It's just yeah. everyone's, you know, everyone's got their own battles and discomfort. And I think uh, discomfort is a constant in life. You're not going to get through life without having discomfort. I think you need it. I think it builds that resilience and and makes us stronger. You've been so great with your time. Where can uh, the listener find you? Can you help us understand that? To ahuapsychology.com. So A-H-U-A psychology. Um, dot com. You can have a look at all my offerings, um, what I do. You can read a little bit about me, and then I offer a free thirty-minute consultation. So if you are keen to chat, we can have a yarn about um, you and your needs and what you want out of this. But I'm stoked to have talked with you. It was a a great chat. No, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for making the time for coming on. I've learned a lot. I hope the listener has. And I think we'll have to revisit a, a lot of these things as your research goes on and, and as we get some racing going and we can maybe dive into some of the top athletes in the world. Who knows? But thanks so much, Taylor. And uh, I'll link to those um, in the show notes and be sure to check it out. And I think I hope 
if everyone leaves this this episode with just uh, you know having a look at some of these things and seeing if they can be a, a better better version of themselves, and that comes to being aware of what's going on in your mind, would you say as a parting thought? Yeah, and learning learning how to how to live with that discomfort sometimes, and and separate yourself from all the junk that goes on in your head. <laughs> well, brilliant. That's a great way great way to end this. Thanks again. Cool. Thank you, Andrew. See you soon. Huge thanks to Taylor again for making the time, having a chat with me as she as she refers to it, a yarn. That was incredible. I actually learned so much, even though I was lucky enough to work with some psychologists in the past. I really wish I'd actually had some of that uh, in, in my heyday. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, send me a message. Let me know what you thought about it. And uh, maybe as a parting thought, I hope we can all be a little bit more aware of the thoughts in our head and maybe not so worried about them. It's normal. We all get negative thoughts. We all uh, get stressed and we all definitely get stressed when we're at races. Those top level guys, the people we aspire to emulate are definitely nervous at the top of the hill. I can tell you that factually. So thanks again, guys, for downloading this one. I want to give a shout out to some of the guys that are leaving reviews. Um, I got from Mayfielder. He left a review. Andrew has great rapport with his guests, comes prepared, and the result is a great listen. You know, I really appreciate these ones. So if you leave a review, I promise I am going to have a look at it, and it keeps me motivated to bring you more episodes. So guys, please give me a subscribe. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I really think this one can benefit so many people. So I know it was a little bit different to maybe what you're expecting, but let's all try grow. Let's all try be, say, a better version of ourselves. So guys, until the next one, you know what to do. Stay well. Have a good one.